Welcome to the Wealthy Homes Podcast, where we help young Michigan families manage their finances and create wealth. I'm your host, Connor Bowserman, financial advisor with Preferred Financial Group. Welcome to another episode of the Wealthy Homes Podcast and part two of the financial advisor mini series. If this is your first time tuning in, please make sure that you listen to part one as well. This will make a whole lot more sense if you know about the whole mini series as a whole. But basically, what I have done is put together a three part mini series about what a financial advisor is and what we do how we get compensated, and then when does it make sense to hire or have a financial advisor. So this is part two. So we're going to be going into how we get paid. And it is a really touchy subject. Well, pay for anybody is really touchy. I mean, you don't go around your office and ask who's getting paid what and how much they're making. So it's it's kind of hard in that regard. But with our industry, everything's kind of have to be in the open. It wasn't like that in the past, and that's what made some similar products or certain products or certain services kind of bad, I guess, or put them in a bad light. And then people are saying, hey, because you use certain products or because you use these certain services, you're just trying to make the most money. And the financial advisor industry has gotten better at making sure that we're servicing our clients and doing what's best for them and using the financial products that work for their specific situation and using the tools that are best for them. That does not mean, though, that the financial industry is perfect. There are some bad eggs, and just like any industry or any job, there's bad teachers, there's bad cops, there's bad financial advisors. And I think it's really important to know, too, that not every financial professional is a financial advisor or even a financial planner. So that needs to be kind of out in the open as well. Some people may want to act like they are, but that doesn't mean that they actually are in in what they do and the services they provide. So I'm going to kind of pull the curtain back, explain as best I can, because it is really hard to explain the different parts of the financial advisor industry because there are so many moving parts and it's even confusing for an advisor as well. So I'll kind of break it down into two main categories because I think that's the easiest way to explain it. And the first would be called your fee-based or fee-only practices. And these would be what are called RIA or registered investment advisory firms. And then the individuals that work for these firms are investment advisor representatives. So IARs is what they're called. This is what I started out in the industry doing. I only worked for a fee, and there's nothing wrong with that. And this is, in large, in a large way, the way our industry is pushing to go. Just because it is wide open, everything is disclosed kind of upfront, and there's really no mystery to how an advisor is getting paid and compensated, and you can do a wide array of different services for that fee. So there's different ways that you can charge that specific fee. And there's kind of three different ways. So one, which is the most common, is called an asset under management fee. And that's AUM is the acronym that most people will will use. And basically it's just taking all of your investable assets that w- that is with that firm most likely, and they're charging a per- percentage on that amount. And usually 
especially in Michigan, the average is 1%. So for an example, if you have $100,000 in total of all your investment accounts at that firm and they're charging a 1% fee, that would be a $1,000 fee over a course of one year. They can usually bill that dependent on quarterly or monthly or semi-annually. Monthly or quarterly is the most common, just that way they're spreading out the fee. And the good thing about doing it this way too is you're only paying them for the time that you are using them as their as your investment advisor. So if you decide you wanted to leave in six months, you only paid six months of that fee. So it's a little bit easier in that where if you were to pay some kind of a, a sales charge or something, which I'll talk about in a second, you've already paid that sales charge. So whether you leave in six months or a year, you kind of may or may not have uh, done well in that deal. The second fee model would be just like an hourly fee. So this would be similar to like an attorney or something similar to that where they, hey, they're just charging per hour for their services. Sometimes this is best for people who are looking for maybe just like a singular task, like, hey, I really just want an overall comprehensive financial plan. You're just going to pay for that time period. You want to do the investments on your own. You want to do the whole financial planning kind of thing on your own as well and then and the investments, but you just want to know, hey, I'll, am I on track? What can I do to get on track? Uh, that's kind of for your DIY investors. Most people don't do an hourly fee, but it is is something that people can use as a way to have an advisor, but not work with them kind of full time. Another similar way too would be like a subscription based. That's kind of like a newer thing. It's not very common, but you can kind of just pay for a subscription to be with that advisor. And then they will provide services based on the subscription that you buy. Another model would be just like a flat fee. So you're paying a flat couple grand or whatever that flat fee is for that one year. So regardless of how many, how much assets you have, you're just paying that flat fee. Kind of like having like an attorney on retainer kind of a deal. So like I said, the advantages of a fee only or a fee-based advisor is that those fees are out in the open. You have to disclose that upfront for your services and what you're going to be doing for that fee. And it really just depends on the type of investments that you're doing. And I'll kind of cover that in part three. I don't want to get too much into that in this part, but it is very common now for advisors to use that service just because it is so comprehensive. It's not like a singular based approach where, Hey, I only want you to do an investment account. Well, most people are wanting more than just an investment account advice. We're not mutual fund brokers anymore. There still are people like that, but most financial advisors are not just providing a singular action type task. We're trying to be comprehensive financial planners. And that can be a whole lot of different things that we're providing. And again, if you listen to part one, you know that there's a wider range of different things that we do. And that was just the tip of the, the iceberg. What one of the biggest advantages of doing a fee-based type model is that the investment choices that you can choose are really, I wouldn't say endless, but you have a ton more options. You can go to a bunch of different mutual fund companies. You can use exchange-traded funds. You can use stocks. You can use 
all different kinds of CDs or bonds, and you can ladder CDs. You can do a bunch of different things inside that portfolio, and you're not worried about necessarily as, as a transaction cost. Our goal as a financial advisor is to keep the cost as low as possible. So we try not to use mutual funds or exchange-traded funds that incur extra charges to us or the client. And so that way we can keep the, the costs as, as minimal as possible. But we're not held to just one company. We can use the best of the best companies and kind of cherry pick the best funds for, for that client. We're not just tied to just one company. And that's really where the fee-based type advising comes into play. And again, too, you're not held to a certain specific time in the market and you have what's called discretionary uh, advising, which means you don't have to give consent to be able to make a trade. If, if we think it's right to be in the market or out of the market or take a percentage out of the market or put a percentage back in the market or to go into a certain sector of the market, that's our call. You gave us the discretionary authority to do that and you're just paying us that fee for that service. You didn't just pay like a one-time charge for a certain uh, mutual fund company kind of a deal. You gave us the authority to do what's in your best interest. So that kind of leads me into the second part, and that is going to be a commission-based model. Typically, you'll find this with either life insurance agents or registered representatives is what they're called. And basically, they're compensated by their like production. So if they sold a specific product and they got a commission or a percentage of that sale from the insurance company and or the mutual fund company. And I'll kind of break that down uh, a little bit further. So one way that you can be compensated as an advisor is getting a commission from a mutual fund company. For an example, let's say you wanted to use a specific mutual fund company that's very popular and they use what are called A-share products. So you buy into this mutual fund company, you pay an upfront sales charge, and that sales charge is dependent on the dollar amount that you're putting into that, that, that company, which usually starts out at about 5.75%, and it gets as low as 0%. That would basically mean that you had usually around a million dollars and you don't pay what's called an upfront charge to be in that in that mutual fund company. Once you're in that mutual fund company, you are free to use any one of the funds in there without paying an additional charge. And the example that I usually give is that the more you have, the more it's like buying at like a Sam's Club or some kind of a wholesale type place. The more that you have or the more that you're buying, the lesser that you're going to pay for that product. And in this case, for a mutual fund, the more that you have investable assets, the lesser that you're paying in an upfront charge. Once you pay that upfront charge, you are still paying for some kind of an expense to be in that mutual fund company. And you'll pay that type of an expense regardless whether you're with the fee-based or with the mutual fund carrier doing a commission-based model. But then there's also an added cost that's called a 12B1 fee. And it's usually around a quarter of a percent. And that's basically just paying your advisor to continue to manage that account. And it's usually just more of like a service. They're helping you do different things. Maybe it's 
you have questions on your RMDs or you want to contribute more or less. And again, that's you're continuing to pay that advisor for that financial advice. But over time, especially if you're investing as a young adult, this is the cheapest route compared to if you invested in like the fee-based model and paid a 1% average fee. So just for an example, let's say you paid the max sales charge, which is 5.75%, and then you continued to pay your just normal expense ratio, which if you're paying just the advisor, just trying to keep an apples-to-apples comparison, and you're paying about 25 basis points each year for that advisor fee, over the course of 30 years, that would be a, roughly about 13% that you had paid the advisor. Now, if you did the fee-based model and it's a, about a 1% fee per year, well, over 30 years, that's 30%. So over the course of that period of time, you've paid less than half of the fees to be in, in that mutual fund company. The downside of the mutual fund company is you just are really handcuffed on that company you wouldn't be able to necessarily go to from one mutual fund company to another without paying a new upfront sales charge. So as long as you stay within the parameters of that company and use the funds in that mutual fund company, you will not pay an additional sales charge. So that's really good that you use an advisor for that because we're trying to help find the best mutual fund companies. So long-term even if your investment objective changes, we have a mutual fund that's that's good that will help service you and in, in your needs. And that's our goal as an advisor is, is planning long term. And also our job is to make sure that we're finding good mutual funds that have performed well over time. Not necessarily indicative that it's going to continue to do well, but that's our job as the advisor is to continue to find good mutual funds for you that will perform. And and you're looking at good sectors of the market to invest in as well. There's another way that you can be compensated through a mutual fund company, and that's what's called a C share. And basically what you're doing is you're just paying a higher expense ratio, which is basically a percentage of the amount of money that's with that company, very kind of similar to a fee-based. And it's usually around a 1% plus some kind of an expense of the mutual fund. So it's very similar in cost to the fee-based, but usually what we're using these C-shares are for or for maybe short-term type investments. You're only going to invest for maybe 10 years or less, and then that's when it makes sense to to look at C-shares. But most of the time with our clients, we'll go fee-based just because that way we have a little bit more options when it comes to your investments. And so we can kind of cherry pick the good mutual funds or exchange rate funds, whatever it may be uh, in that short period of time. Now, I do want to mention too that there are what are called no-load funds. And basically, it's where you can buy a mutual fund without paying that upfront sales charge. Now, dependent on what type of share class is what it's called, it depends on how much of a fee that you're paying or an expense that you're paying for that fund. So just a normal retail, which is just Joe Schmo on the street wanted to buy a mutual fund, most likely you're getting a retail fund. And those costs can be higher or most likely are higher than the ongoing expenses that an A share would have. So like just a rough example, I'm just pulling this out of thin air. I'm not using a specific fund, but usually 
like an A share would be around six tenths of a percent in a year that you're paying as a fee to the mutual fund company, where retail might be between between the 0.6 to 1% or more. It just really depends on the mutual fund, what they're doing, and the type of company that you're working with. But they're also what are called institutional shares. These are usually used with the fee-based or RIA-type model, and you're basically able to buy the same mutual fund just for at a lower cost because you're not paying that 12B1 fee, that quarter of a percent. So for example, you could be using that same mutual fund like that the A-share is using, but instead of 0.6, you just subtract that, and so you're looking at about 0.45% as an ongoing fee. Now, you never see those expenses. Those are priced into the mutual funds each and every day, but it does, again, it goes against any other performance in the fund. So any any performance that you usually show, they'll show the difference between if it's paying at what's called NAV, which is the net asset value, versus if you had paid uh, for for the fees or the expense ratio during that that time. I know I got into the weeds a little bit there. If it's confusing to you, don't worry. I'm, again, I'm just trying to pull back the curtain and explain things that most of the time an advisor, especially if they're going down this route with you or can sell this product for you, will go over and they have to go over it with you. But it is good for you to know uh, how an advisor is being compensated when it comes to these different investment advices. So for the commission-based model, that is only one facet from a mutual fund company, but there are also insurance companies as well. And so you can be compensated through what are called annuities, which is basically just a stream of income. That's what an annuity basically stands for. So if you think of like a pension or social security, this is an annuity. You're just paid a, a stream of income over the course of your life. Now, over time, these different annuities have morphed into a bunch of different products with different kinds of riders, and it really just depends on the client what tool and what annuity makes sense for that client. But over time, these annuities are like the most common would be a variable annuity, and then you can get into SPIAs, which is basically Social Security or you know your straight life type pension option. But there's also called fixed annuities or fixed index annuities, RILAs and buffers, and the list goes on and on and on. If you don't know what those are, don't worry. <laughs> it just, uh, it's just there's a bunch of different products, and they're all doing a specific financial tool. And if that financial tool does not fit what works for you, then we don't look at it or we don't use it. But if we think and if it's in your best interest for that type of product, based on maybe a couple of different variables like risk tolerance, then maybe that makes sense for you. But it really just depends on the client. But on average, for those types of products, they're usually paying the advisor around a 1% type fee. If you buy just a standard, what's called a variable annuity, they have what's called an M&E cost, which is mortality and expense. And basically that fee is just paid to to the advisor, and and it has, historically, these annuities were much more expensive than they are today, and they were typically paying the advisor a whole lot more. Historically, 
you know, these paid like 5% upfront to an advisor and then a 1%, what's called a trail. So, you know, to continue to service that client where nowadays that's really not an option. Uh, it's it, again, they've tried to crack down on that type of product to incentivize the advisor to sell those where now they're trying to incentivize advisors to use that are best for their, their client, which of course makes hundred percent sense. So I think that connotation that annuities are super expensive and they're just, you know, helping out the advisor, that was more or less true, you know, years and years ago. But nowadays, a lot of these annuity companies have cracked down and have cut a lot of the costs to make them competitive and then also make sure that they're basically fee neutral or that they're revenue neutral to the advisor. Another way an advisor can be compensated is through through life insurance. And usually what they get is a commission based on the life insurance that they sell. And it really just depends on the type of product, whether they're buying a term insurance policy or some kind of a permanent policy, which would be like a whole life or a universal life policy. And the reason that whole life and universal lives aren't as common or have gotten a bad rap is because they are higher in premium, which then in turn is incentivizing the advisor to sell these higher premium type products to earn more money. If you've been listening to me for a while now, you know that I'm not a huge fan of permanent life insurance policies. The only reason I would really use one is more for estate planning purposes. So once you're getting older in life and you're looking to pass money on to your heirs, in a tax-free manner, then yes, then I believe that permanent insurance policies are important. But I do not think that they are worthwhile when you're younger. Your A term policy is going to give you a whole lot more bang for your buck. Now, typically on most life insurance policies, you're getting paid usually 70 to sometimes 100% of what the client pays in the first year of premium. So if they, get, if they pay $1,000 in premium over one year, then they're making anywhere between seven hundred to a thousand dollars on that on that insurance policy. Now that completely varies on a bunch of different factors, but just in general, that's how much they get paid on that. Now I'm going to get into kind of some different things here, and it's basically the licenses that it requires to do these different types of jobs and tasks. So just to sell a life insurance policy, you need to be life insurance licensed, and usually it's a life and health exam that you have to pass, and it's through the state of Michigan. It's not as hard as what would be like a securities exam, which is more of like a national exam to do different things, which would be, for an example, the fee-based model or that mutual fund model. But you cannot do a securities if you are only a life insurance agent. There are certain products that they can sell that are technically financial products, which would be like a fixed annuity or a fixed indexed annuity. This is one of my pet peeves is when a life insurance agent is holding themselves like they are a financial advisor, but they are only able to sell insurance products. This means that they cannot legally be compensated for selling a mutual fund or doing these certain services for a fee. That's really important because there are a lot of people and 
they're they're diff- they're regulated differently when they're only being used through the state and using insurance products and that is one thing that really makes me angry is because we have to go through so many different red tapes to be able to use certain products and to sell a mutual fund but these life insurance agents are able to use these financial products as kind of like a one size fits all for these clients and they're not necessarily the best thing for the client they're much different in the way that they work and they're usually better for the insurance company i'll just leave it at that but that again is one of my pet peeves so to be a financial advisor you have to be security licensed which means that they've passed some type of securities exam to be able to use that type of product Again, that could be the registered rep or they're doing some type of fee model. Now, there are also what is called duly registered advisors, and that is actually what I am. And it's basically where you can be compensated by selling a mutual fund and being compensated through the mutual fund company through a commission, or we can go a fee-based route and provide that type of service for our client. I, in my personal opinion, believe that is how you can truly be a fiduciary. And that word has been thrown around a lot, especially in our industry over the past couple of years. And what basically a fiduciary means is that you have to do what is in your client's best interest. Well, what's in my client's best interest is really tough to to figure out. A fee-based advisor may say, hey, I can do all these different things for my client and the fees out in the open and all this stuff. Well, that's great. But I just showed you for a thir- for somebody who's younger and is going to be investing for the next 30 years, well, a mutual fund could probably be just as good, if, if anything, could be in their best interest as well. And so that's where I have a little bit of a fight there. And I, when I worked for an RIA and only did work for a fee, I had that battle within within me that I felt like was wrong. I felt like we were charging our clients way too much money for the services that we are really providing them. And that's where I really like the step that I made to be duly registered because I believe I can serve all clients and what's best for them. And, and if truly, if you're working with a good advisor, they're not really worried about how much money they're going to make on one particular sale. My goal is to work with these clients and do what's in their best interest and put them on a path to be financially successful. But again, that is my opinion. And I will go into the fiduciary role and what a fiduciary really does in part three, which again is when to hire or have a financial advisor. So stay tuned for part three of the mini part series. And again, I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Wealthy Homes Podcast. Be sure to click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Connor Bowsman or Preferred Financial Group.
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of Connor Bowserman or other qualified financial advisors with any questions you may have regarding this episode. Connor Bowserman is a licensed financial advisor and any of the investment advisory services offered are through Harbor Investments, member SPIC. Products and services provided are not NCUA insured, have no credit union guarantee, and may lose value. Consumers Professional Credit Union and Marshall Community Credit Union and Harbor Investments are separate and independent companies, and credit unions are not providing security services. Just a quick disclaimer, what I talked about was just the tip of the iceberg, and I did not go into great details on every single facet of whether you're talking about working for a fee or through some type of commission. So be sure to talk with me as an advisor or your advisor on what is best for you and what they can legally do uh, when it comes to the advice that they give.